How do you search for God? How would you go about in a step-by-step way deciding what religion you ought to believe? Should I be a Muslim? Should I be a Christian? Should I be a Buddhist? How would one select a religion, perhaps atheism, in a principled, thoughtful way that makes sense? What I'd like to do in this session is to present my reflections on this topic. And since I am a Christian, it will come as no surprise that I believe that this step-by-step procedure most reasonably leads to Christianity as, as the true religion, as opposed to Islam or Buddhism or Hinduism or another world religion. But you won't have to take my word for that. What I'd like for you to do is to listen to how I go about developing this case and see if it makes sense to you. I want to proceed in the following steps. Number one, I'd like to give you some background information as to how I go about engaging in the search for God to begin with. Step two, I'll lay out some basic principles about why I am a monotheist. And then step three, I will lay out some reasons why I am a Christian monotheist as opposed to a Muslim or a Jew. So let's begin with some background information. If a person is going to search for God, they ought to search for the truth and not for what works or helps them simply. Um, You Think of it this way. If you're going to search for God, you want to know if there really is a God and what's true about God. You don't want to settle for beliefs that may work or make you feel better or help you, but you don't care whether or not they're true. To illustrate this, let me tell you a story about a fictitious individual named Juan Mug, W-O-N-M-U-G. Juan Mug graduated from high school, and he was an absolute idiot. He knew absolutely nothing. He could add and subtract, that was about all, but he could not multiply or divide in, in arithmetic. But Juan Mug decided he wanted to go to college and major in physics. So he actually got accepted at a university and became a physics major. <clears throat> One day in his physics class, Juan Mug took an exam and he got three out of 100 questions right. The professor called an emergency meeting, invited all the physics students and professors to the meeting, but Juan Mug was left out and didn't know anything at all about this secret meeting that was happening behind his back. The professor said, we have this student named Juan Mug, who is a terrible, terrible student. Let's have a joke at his expense for four years. Let's mock him and spoof him behind his back, and we'll have a good time, and he'll never know about it. Let's make Juan Mug think that he is the best physics student that has ever come to study here at the university. And he will never know that he's really... Uh, dumb after all. So the next day in class, Juan Mug raises his hand and asks a question that is so bad it hardly has anything to do with the subject matter. But the professor says, Juan Mug, in 15 years of teaching, that's the finest question I've ever been asked. Would you give me a few days to think of an answer? Juan Mug ends up getting 100% on his final exam whereas in reality, he only got 5 out of 100 correct, 
and clearly flunked the test, but Juan Mug ends up graduating after four years of college at the very top of his class. In fact, he is so encouraged, he decides, that he is going to go ahead and become a Ph.D. in physics, so he applies to graduate school. But not to worry, the scientists at his college send out on the Internet a campaign so that all the scientists in the world are in it on, the, on the spoof. Juan Mug ends up graduating with his doctorate in physics. He is given a job at a major university. He represents high-level national security interests for the United States in conferences around the world. He is interviewed by Time and Newsweek magazine. Juan Mug is the laughing stock of the entire world because everyone hates him and everybody thinks that he is a joke, but he doesn't know about it. Here is my question. Would you like to be one mug? Would you take your life and exchange it for one mug's life? Now, before you answer the question, let me remind you that one mug's beliefs work for him. He is one of the happiest people on the face of the earth. Why? Because from the time he gets up in the morning until the time he goes to bed at night, his mind is filled with beliefs like this. I am really doing a good job in my work. My students are lucky to study under me. People admire me and adore my work. I am honored all over the world for being one of the finest scientists of my generation. The interview that I gave in Time magazine was an excellent interview. The United States government is lucky to have me serving them in top-secret conferences. Juan Mug's beliefs work for him. There's just one small problem with them. All of them are false. If you don't envy Juan Mug, what you're telling me is that there is something more important than whether a belief works for you, and that is whether or not the belief is true. So when we search for God, we ought to be searching for true beliefs. But now we bump up against a problem, because all of the world's religions can't be true. Let me illustrate it with what I call the mother illustration. Years ago, I was speaking at a university campus, and one young man raised his hand and said, Dr. Moreland, I believe that all religions are true to their practitioners. Buddhism is true to Buddhists. Islam is true to Muslims. Christianity is true for Christians. All these religions are basically the same thing, and they're true for those that believe them. I asked this young man, pardon me, but would you tell me what my mother looks like? Surprised, he said, well, I have no idea. I've never met your mother. Well, I said, give it a try. Well, he said, since you're short, I'll say that she's maybe five feet tall, weighs 100 pounds, and has blonde hair. There was another gentleman sitting next to him, and I said, sir, would you tell me what my mother looks like? And he said, I'll say she's five feet, four inches tall, weighs 120 pounds, and has brown hair. You, sir, over here, I asked a third gentleman. Would you tell me what my mother looks like? And he said, I'm going to guess she's five feet, seven inches tall, weighs 140 pounds, and has gray hair. Now I said, my mother cannot be five feet tall, five feet, four inches tall, five feet, seven inches tall, all at the same time. She can't weigh 100 pounds, 120 pounds, 
and 140 pounds all at once. And she can't have blonde hair, brown hair, and gray hair simultaneously. Now, I said, you, sir, you think my mother is 5'4", weighs 120 pounds, and has brown hair. You could believe this so fervently and so sincerely that you began to develop temples all around the world that worshipped the fact that my mother is 5 feet 4 inches tall, that she weighs 120 pounds and has brown hair. You could raise money and send missionaries all around the world to persuade a billion people in the earth's population that my mother is 5 feet 4, weighs 120 pounds, and has brown hair. But if she isn't 5 feet tall and doesn't weigh 120 pounds and doesn't have brown hair, your sincerity and the number of people that you have that believe this don't matter. What matters is what's true, not what you sincerely believe. The mother illustration illustrates that the world's religions cannot all be true because they contradict one another. Buddha was an agnostic about whether or not there was a supreme being called God. In certain forms of popular Hinduism, there are as many as 330 million gods. In Islam, one of the greatest infidelities that you can, you can practice is claiming that Jesus Christ is God and that the triune God, the Trinity, is true. In Christianity, one of the central teachings in order for you to be a Christian is that you must bow and acknowledge that Jesus is God and that God is Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. There can't be no God, 330 million gods, a God that is not a triune trinity and a God who is a trinity all at the same time. These religions, as the mother illustration demonstrates, can't all be true. Not only does the mother illustration illustrate that they can't all be true, but it also follows that sincerity and the numbers that believe something are not enough. There could be millions upon millions of Muslims who believe in Islam, but that doesn't make it true. And the same is the case with Christianity. So then this raises the question, how do we go about doing this? Well, let me explain to you how you don't want to approach the question of God. You do not want to approach the question of God by believing things simply because your parents and your culture told you it was so. Why is that? Because the people in your culture and your parents could be mistaken and terribly mistaken. You see, if you simply believe things that are in your culture, then you will have different religions that will tend to flourish in certain cultures because everyone believes those religions in those cultures. And as you go about picking and choosing your view of God, you will select a view of God that simply parrots or mirrors your family and your culture, and you will not seriously challenge the beliefs that you were taught when you were a child. One wants to be very, very careful then if one is raised in a religious culture, not simply to accept the beliefs of that culture, because the culture tells you they're correct. 
What you want to do instead is to think very, very carefully about whether or not the religion you inherited from your childhood is real and true. We have atheism. We have Judaism, Christianity, Islam, Hinduism, Buddhism, and other forms of religions that can't all be right. Given that fact, you want to be very, very careful not to simply accept a religion because it is a part of your society, because your society could be mistaken and wrong about something in the long run. Now, what I want to suggest at this point is that this whole question of God is a very serious, important question. Let me illustrate it as follows. The other day, we had a gardener who came to our house, and we had planted a flower in our backyard, and he, by mistake, thought it was a weed, pulled it up and threw it in the trash. We went out and told him the next time we saw him, uh, that was a flower, not a weed. Uh, Please, when we replant this, don't pull it up next time because we really want this to grow. Contrast that with a situation where, let's suppose... I had a tumor in my brain that I needed to have operated on and taken out. Suppose I went to a doctor and I said to him, do you think you could perform surgery to take this tumor on my brain and remove it? And the doctor said, why, of course I could do that. Isn't the brain somewhere around the navel area? If the doctor said that, I think that I would automatically be within my rights to leave his office immediately. What's the difference between the case of the doctor and the case of the gardener who pulled the flower? Because after all, when the gardener pulled the flower by mistake, it wasn't that big big a deal. Here's the difference. The more important the issue, the greater is the damage from having a false belief. The brain surgeon issue is so important that a false belief about the brain being in the navel area is a serious, serious mistake. The difference between one flower and one weed, however, is not a very significant issue, and the gardener's false belief in that case was not that significant or substantial. I submit to you that your view of God is more like brain surgery than pulling flowers. Because the single most important thing about you is what comes to your mind when you hear the word God. Studies have indicated that a person's view of God will shape their attitudes toward politics, right and wrong, and the purpose and meaning of life itself. Even if you're an atheist, that view of God will shape your attitudes and your values dramatically. Now, what have I said by way of introduction? I've said that the wand mug illustration illustrates the fact that we don't want to select a religious view because it works. We want to select a religious view because it is true and has a chance of being true. The second thing that I illustrated in the mother illustration is that all the world's religions cannot be true because they contradict one another. And sincerity and numbers of belief doesn't make something real or true. I also suggested that you don't want to simply believe a religion because you were taught that as a child 
and it's a part of your culture because cultures can be mistaken. And then finally, with the brain surgeon Gardner illustration, I tried to show that the more important the issue, the greater the harm done in having a false belief. This then raises the question, how should we go about searching for God? May I suggest the answer is not by faith, but it is on the basis of evidence. What you and I have an obligation to do is to sift through the evidence and come up with a religion that has the most reasonable evidence supporting the fact that it's true. This is the journey that I myself have taken, and the reason that I believe in God is I believe that it is more reasonable to believe in God than atheism. The reason I am a Christian as opposed to an adherent of another religion is because I believe the evidence points to the fact that Jesus Christ was really the Son of God who was actually crucified on the cross and was raised from the dead the third day. And I do not believe that same quality of evidence can be found in Islam and other religions. But I'm getting ahead of myself. The simple thing I want you to realize at this stage of my lecture is that the most important thing you can do if you're going to try to find God is to apply your thinking and your mind as carefully as you possibly can and as openly as you possibly can and sift the evidence. Having given this introduction now, I want to move to the topic of is there a supreme being? And how would we know? And I believe that there are facts about the creation that indicate that there really must be a supreme being that is the creator of the universe. Fact number one, which I referred to in an earlier lecture in this particular series, involves the fact that the universe began to exist. And if the universe began to exist, something had to bring it into existence from the very beginning. The universe is like a hot cup of coffee that is using up its heat and cooling off as time goes on. Scientists now know, according to the law, the second law of thermodynamics, that the universe, like a coffee cup, is using up its heat energy and its light. In fact, scientists predict that at a time in the future, the universe will reach a point where there will no longer be any heat and any light and any motion anywhere in space-time. Since the universe is using up its light, its heat, and its power to move, and since the universe has not reached the point yet where there's no longer any heat, light, or motion, it follows that the universe has not been here forever. Why? Had the universe been here forever, it would have already used up its heat, light, and motion energy infinitely long ago. Since it hasn't used up those forms of energy, the universe could have only been winding down for a finite period of time. And there was a beginning when the universe was wound up. Now, winding up requires a winder-upper. If the universe is using its energy up, there had to be a time when all the initial energy was put into the universe from the outside, 
And there had to be someone supernatural that was able to create that energy and place it into the universe from the beginning and from outside the universe itself. That's the first reason that I believe in God. The second reason I believe in God is the existence of what I call gratuitous beauty. I admit that there is evil in the world, and I'll talk about that in just a second. But the universe contains an incredible amount of beauty. Sunset over the ocean, the fish that fill the oceans, the rainforests, the the beauty of the clouds. There is beauty all throughout the world, and this beauty is gratuitous. What do I mean by gratuitous? That means it serves no particular purpose except to delight our hearts and to make our lives cheerful about the beauty of the creation itself. The universe looks like it's the painting of a grand artist that painted it to have this beauty. And there is no explanation for the origin of beauty apart from the fact that there is a grand divine artist that is the source of the beauty in the first place. The third reason that I believe in God is the existence of biological information. We know that information only comes from minds. If we were to discover a signal from outer space that conveyed information, we would know immediately that it was produced by an intelligence that was the origin of that signal of information. But Biological organisms contain DNA molecules that are filled with information. Indeed, one cell has more information in it than all of the information in a standard library at a university. If information can only come from an intelligent mind, it seems to follow that the information that teems throughout the living world must have its source in an intelligent mind. That's the third reason that I believe in God. Here's a fourth reason why I believe in God. There is an absolute moral law. And we all know where moral law comes from. Moral law comes from a moral law giver. Now, we all know that there's an absolute moral law. In fact, people who deny that there's an absolute moral law and claim to be relativists, really don't believe that. To illustrate it, a few years ago I was talking to a young man who said that he did not believe in any absolutes, that everything was relative. As I was talking to him, I found out that he was deeply, deeply committed to preserving the environment. Well, I shared with him that I had four friends that once a month the five of us got together, we contributed $50 each into a pot totaling $250. We would go up to a lake called Lake Paris, which is near where we live. We would buy a 100-gallon drum of sulfuric acid, and we would dump the acid in the lake. And then we would stand around waiting to see how many fish were killed and floated to the surface. And we had taken bets on how many fish we would be able to kill with a sulfuric acid. And whoever got closest to the number of fish we actually killed got to keep the $250 pot that we had contributed to. 
Well, now, we really didn't do this, but I was telling this young man the story to illustrate a point. He became very, very angry at me and my friends, and he began to scold me for what I was doing. I responded to him by saying, you know, it seems to me that your reaction to my story indicates that you think that what my friends and I are doing is wrong. It seems to me, then, that you really do believe in an absolute moral law in the areas of your life that you care deeply about, but you do not care for an absolute moral law or believe in it in areas of your life where it's convenient to your lifestyle. It follows, then, that you really are an absolutist after all. I have found over the years that when I talk to people who claim they don't believe in an absolute moral law, The only thing that I have to do is to find out what they cherish and what they care about deeply, act like it's nothing but relative, and I get a reaction where the person really is a moral absolutist after all. Yes, we all know that there's an absolute moral law. The question is, where does the absolute moral law come from? In the Nuremberg War Trials, where the Nazi criminals were tried for their war crimes in World War II, some of the Nazi criminals defended themselves by arguing that everything is relative. Their argument went something like this. Why would you prosecute us since we have a right to come up with our own moral values and we don't have to live by your standards since everything is relative? To that argument, one of the judges at the Nuremberg trial, said to the war criminals, you're forgetting one thing, there is a law above the law. What did he mean by a law above the law? What he meant was that there is an absolute moral law that's real, that is above the human laws and the human constitutions and the human principles that characterize different societies and that every society must answer to that higher law. The question needs to be raised, however, where does that law above the law come from? My view is that we all know very well where laws come from. They come from lawgivers. If there is an absolute moral law, there would need to be an absolute moral law giver. Finally, I believe in a supreme being because of the existence of evil. Now, this may surprise you, because many people think that evil is evidence that there is no supreme being, but I think it's the other way around. Let me ask you, what exactly is evil? Evil is when things aren't the way they're supposed to be. Well, if there is evil, if there is a way... if things are the way they're not supposed to be, it follows that there is a way things are supposed to be. But if there is a way things are supposed to be, that means there must be a way things were designed to be. Think of it like this. An automobile can have a bad or an evil carburetor Because when I say the carburetor in the automobile is bad, I am saying it's not working the way it's supposed to work. And when I say it's not working the way it's supposed to work, what I'm really saying is 
It's not working the way it was designed to work. Thus, there can be a difference between a good and a bad carburetor only if there is a designer. By the same token, there can be a difference between real goodness and real evil only if there is a way things are supposed to be, that is, only if there is a designer of the world. So because the world began to exist, because there is beauty in the world, because there is biological information, because the difference between good and evil points to a designer, I believe in a supreme being. I could also argue for the existence of God based upon finite consciousness. After all, all of us are conscious. We have thoughts, beliefs, sensations, emotions, and desires that reside within us all throughout our lives. Consciousness is not physical, it is immaterial. But now do you see the problem? If you start with matter after the Big Bang and you merely rearrange matter according to the laws of chemistry and physics, then the appearance of consciousness would be an act of getting something out of nothing because you would get consciousness coming into existence from materials that have no consciousness in them. No. The fact that there is finite consciousness in all of us is evidence that the universe begins with a conscious being from the very start. I believe that these pieces of evidence imply that there is a monotheistic God. However, you may ask the question, why should I not be a polytheist? Could not these arguments be used to support the existence of many, many gods? I believe the answer to that is no. I believe that these arguments support the premise that there is one and only one personal God. Now, why would I not be a polytheist as opposed to a monotheist? Let me give you some reasons. Number one, all finite things, including finite gods, require time to live in them. If you think about the deities that characterize Hinduism, if you think about the deities that characterize the ancient Greeks, such as Zeus, who was alleged to live on Mount Olympus, these gods, because they are finite, are capable of change and of, of undergoing temporal processes. What this means is that these deities, because they're capable of changing, and they do constantly change and interact, require a background of time within which they must exist. But the cause of the beginning of the universe has to be timeless. Because we now know the universe began to exist, whatever caused the beginning of the universe cannot require time for it to exist since it existed without time prior to when it created time. Thus, the monotheistic God that is required to explain the origin of the universe must be a deity that lives outside of time and not a finite created deity that requires time to live in. The second reason that I'm not a polytheist is based on the principle 
of simplicity. If two explanations can explain the data that I've just given, one ought to prefer the simpler of the two explanations, even granting they do an equal job of explaining the data. If one God will explain the origin of the universe, the origin of beauty, the origin of biological information, and so on, why should we postulate many gods when one God will do the job of explaining what needs to be explained? It follows that any number of gods from two on is explanatorily impotent. It offers no explanation for why this many gods as opposed to a number, another number of gods. Ask yourself the question, suppose a polytheist believes in X number of gods, say 330 million, 5,000, whatever X turns out to be, and ask the polytheist, why are there X deities as opposed to X minus 50 or X divided by 2? I believe the polytheist will not be able to answer that question and that will show that the number of deities in a polytheistic religion is ultimately arbitrary and it doesn't explain anything. <clears throat> the final reason why I'm not an advocate of polytheism is because a monotheistic religion like Christianity <clears throat> can explain experiences of finite deities among polytheists as experiences of demons and the devil himself. I believe that when people who are devoted to polytheistic religions have religious experiences of their temple deity, what they're really experiencing is a demon and not a god at all. And my proof for this would be that monotheism can explain experiences of demons but polytheists cannot explain experiences of a monotheistic God, which happens all around the world, where people say they experience the one and only true God. For these reasons, then, I'm a monotheist. But that raises the question, on what basis, then, should I become a Christian as opposed to a Muslim, a Jew, or another monotheist? Let me offer you some criteria for selecting a religion as opposed to other religions. And I will offer you four criteria. Criterion number one, you ought to select a religion whose picture of God harmonizes with what we already know about God from the creation. Note, I did not say you ought to pick a religion whose picture of God harmonizes with what we know about God from the Bible. At this point, that would be cheating in favor of Judaism or Christianity as over against the Quran or some other sacred text. No, I believe, as I have already argued in this session, that the creation itself provides evidence for one single creator-designer God. That means that before I ever pick up a religious text, before I pick up the Bhagavad Gita or some other religious text, I have been reading the book of creation and I should have concluded that there is one and only one supreme being. Thus, I ought to pick a religion that is monotheistic 
because monotheism is the best view to explain the evidence of the created universe. That is criterion number one. Criterion number two, you ought to select a religion that does the best job of diagnosing what is wrong with the human condition and providing the deepest, most adequate solution to that human predicament. Now, what exactly is wrong with human beings cross-culturally? What do we need? What is our problem? Well, the first problem we face is what I call a threefold alienation. We find ourselves alienated first from God. He seems distant, hard to know, and unavailable. Second, we find ourselves alienated from other people, including those we love. We do not treat them the way we want to treat them. We sometimes are harmful to them. And third, we find ourselves alienated from ourselves. We find that we don't even live up to the moral codes that we ourselves claim to believe in. So we are at odds sometimes with ourselves. we are at odds with other people, including our loved ones, and we are at odds with God Almighty. Whatever religion you end up selecting should do a job of addressing this threefold form of alienation. The second problem that I find to be true, world over and cross-culturally, is the presence of tremendous shame and guilt. There are shame cultures and guilt cultures, but either way, people the world over find themselves to be filled with shame and guilt because they know that they are broken morally. They look at their lives, they know they do things they shouldn't do, and they experience a certain amount of shame and guilt because of the way they live their lives. Anyone who has to earn favor with God by leading a good life before they're acceptable with God will never know whether or not they're acceptable because you'll never be able to know whether your life has been good enough to please God at the end of the day. Third, there is a great desire for meaning in life and purpose and drama. And one ought to pick a religion where there is a cosmic drama between good and evil and a great purpose to live for. Finally, you ought to pick a religion where there is help and power that comes from God to live the kind of life that we know we ought to, and there is loving intimacy and fellowship with God Himself. Let me explain. Part of the human need is not only for forgiveness for what I've done wrong, but I need power to live the kind of life that I need to live. Because I know that I can't live this life on my own. I need help. I need power. I also find in my heart that there is a hunger for, to experience an intimate, tender, loving relationship with my Creator. I believe that you ought to pick a religion that does the most profound job of identifying this threefold alienation, this problem of shame and guilt, this hunger for meaning in life and drama, and this need for personal empowerment and a, 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 the need for an intimate, loving relationship with God. 
I believe that the religion of Jesus of Nazareth does a better job of diagnosing these problems and addressing them compared to any religion in the world. Jesus Christ identifies our alienation from God and from each other and from our loved ones by teaching us that we are all fallen beings who have sinned against God and we have experienced in our own person the moral corruption that comes from that fall. As a result, we experience alienation from the moral law and from the things that we ourselves even claim we believe are right and wrong. Jesus taught that there is shame and guilt because we have lived a life that has been contrary to the laws of God, but through His death and His resurrection on the cross and subsequently, He has provided for forgiveness for that shame and guilt and from the alienation that we experience with one another and with God Himself. Jesus Christ claims that He has created each one of us to serve in His great body and His great army to be His hands and His feet and His body on this earth to reach out to others. You see, when Jesus was here, His his Spirit lived in His own flesh. But now, the people who know Him are His flesh. We are His body. We are empowered by His Spirit to take His Word and His healing ministry around the world. And finally, this need for empowerment comes because when a person comes to follow Jesus, Jesus and His Holy Spirit come to live inside of us and to give us the power that we need to live the kind of life that we know we need to but can't do on our own. And through that Spirit that comes to dwell in us, our tender, loving Father, our God, is made real and intimate and personal to us. So the second criterion for choosing a religion is that you ought to pick a religion that does the best job of diagnosing the human situation and providing a solution to it. Third, you ought to select a religion whose origin and continued success is best explained by the miraculous compared to other religions. Now, when it comes to Christianity, there are two sources of miracles that testify to the truthfulness of Christianity. Fulfilled prophecies and miracles in Jesus' life and in the lives of His followers. Let me explain. Before Jesus came, for centuries in the Old Testament, there are hundreds of prophecies that predicted the coming of the Messiah to Israel. The place that he was born in Bethlehem was predicted. That he would spend his childhood in Egypt was predicted. That he would uh, be crucified and pierced before men and that he would raise from the dead. These and dozens upon dozens of other prophecies were predicted hundreds of years before Jesus came. It is almost impossible to explain these prophecies as coincidence or as being fabricated or made up. The evidence is that there were prophets in the Old Testament, Isaiah, Jeremiah, Moses, who predicted the coming of one 
who would be the ultimate revelation of God to the human race. And Jesus of Nazareth fulfills all of those prophecies to, to, to a hilt perfectly. So fulfilled prophecy is one reason why I'm a Christian. The second reason that I'm a Christian according to this criterion is the historical evidence for the reliability of the New Testament documents. There is good historical evidence that the New Testament documents are historically reliable. Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John and the epistles of the New Testament were written too close to the events they record for legend and myth to creep into those accounts. As a matter of fact, from the time that Jesus was executed, within the time of eyewitnesses, we already have the miracles and the resurrection of Jesus being reported and his miraculous career in public. I believe that there is strong historical evidence that the New Testament documents are historically reliable. I also believe that there has been more healing and more power in the name of Jesus than in any other religion. I believe that the Christian God and, and sometimes heals people who don't know Jesus because He is generous and merciful and loving. So I am not suggesting that there has never been healing that has ever taken place in the world outside of the name of Jesus. But what I am suggesting is that the number of healings, the power of the healings, and the degree of healings that have happened in the name of Jesus is superior to those done in the name of any other religion. So the third criterion as to why I'm a Christian is that I believe that the historical evidence and the, is, is solid for the reliability of the New Testament, and I believe that there is historical evidence that Jesus rose from the dead. I believe He fulfilled prophecies that were prophesied about His coming, and I believe that there has been incredible healing done in the name of the risen Jesus ever since His execution. In fact, I was debating an atheist years ago when he said to me, why not Islam or Buddhism or some other religion? And I said, Muhammad is dead and is in his grave. Buddha is dead and in his grave. But Jesus is no longer in his grave. He is risen from the dead and he is still alive. One of the reasons I'm a Christian then is because there is solid historical evidence for the anastasis of Jesus, for the bodily resurrection of Jesus from the dead three days after his crucifixion. The final criterion as to, why, as to how to accept a religion is that you ought to pick a religion that has a full, accurate picture of Jesus instead of a religion that has a watered-down, distorted picture of Jesus. Now, you might be thinking that it sounds like that's cheating, because after all, I'm a Christian, and here I'm developing a criterion that includes selecting a religion that has an accurate picture of Jesus in it. How can I assert such a thing? Well, you have to remember that Jesus Christ is the single most important figure in the history of the world. In fact, all religions honor and respect Jesus and claim Him as one of their own. In Islam, Jesus is a great, outstanding prophet. In Hinduism, He is an avatar of the divine. 
In Buddhism, he is a bodhisattva. In all the world's religions, they want to claim a certain part of Jesus as their own in order to have Jesus align with their own religious ideology. My own view is then that everyone recognizes that Jesus Christ is the single most important figure and thus they want to appropriate him in their religion. But the place that you go to get the fullest, most accurate picture of Jesus is not the Quran or not Buddhism or not some other religion. It is instead the manuscript documents in the New Testament. And here we find Jesus himself claiming that he was God, claiming that he was the sole final revelation of God to the human race. Now, the problem then is, especially for Muslims, and if you are listening to my voice and you're a Muslim, I challenge you with a question. If you go to the great universities of the Western world and go to their history departments, you will not find one historian who is not a committed Muslim who believes that the Quran provides accurate historical information about the real historical Jesus, not one. However, historians in universities all across Europe and Canada and the United States, regardless of their religious beliefs, believe that the manuscripts of the New Testament provide historical information about the real Jesus that really lived. How can a person practice Islam and accept a book that says things about Jesus Christ when no scholar will accept this information as being historically reliable unless they're already committed to Islam in the first place? That problem is not true for Christians. We find secular scholars who are not practicing Christians who will still acknowledge that there is much historical evidence available in the, in the writings of the New Testament. I say then that for these four reasons, one ought to be a Christian. Number one, pick a religion that is monotheistic because that is required of creation. Number two, pick a religion that does the best job of diagnosing and solving the human predicament of alienation, shame and guilt, the need for meaning and drama in life, the need for empowerment to live the kind of life we know we ought to, and the need for loving intimacy with our wonderful God. Pick a religion that is best explained by the supernatural, miraculous act of God in its origin and continued success. And I've appealed to messianic prophecy and historical evidence for the reliability of the New Testament documents, including the reality of the resurrection of Jesus from the dead. And then finally, pick a religion that doesn't have a distorted, watered-down picture of Jesus, but a full, accurate picture of who Jesus really was, and that would be Christianity. For these reasons, I am a Christian and not a Muslim or a Buddhist. I say that with no disrespect, but I believe that Christianity is true, and that at the end of the day, these other religions are not really true depictions of the way the God of reality really is.